You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future. But until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Our scripture reading this morning is from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, and chapter 7, verses 11, 18 through 19, and 23 through 28. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. The former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of other people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, for those who heard last week's sermon, you'll know that over these four weeks, these four weeks of Advent, we're going through a series entitled The Hopes and Fears of All the Years. Uh, from that familiar Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, which has that line that rings out, Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Pastor Kyle began the series last week by preaching Jesus as the final prophet. Jesus as the one who who is the word of God to us and for us. Uh, The notion that we all want to hear a word from God, a word that comes from beyond us, a word that tells us the things that we need to hear, who we are, where we're going, and what it's all about. And that Jesus comes to us as the final prophet, who is himself the word of God made flesh. He tells us who we are and transforms us into who we're meant to be. And this week, we turn to a passage in Hebrews chapter 7, which is part of a lengthy dialogue, uh, which presents to us Jesus as the true and final priest for us. Jesus, the priest for us. The priest, the one who offers sacrifice on our behalf. But we might ask, what do we need a priest for in our world? And what does this have to do with our hopes and fears 
even leading up to the Christmas season. We are a people who are a long way off from the Old Testament world where sacrifices were continually made before God, where people had a sense of their need for atonement, to be made right with God or to be made right with the gods. This is not our world, but it was the world of our ancestors. Uh, One writer tells the story of the Roman emperor Diocletian that in the year 299 AD, he had participated in a sacrifice that failed. Priests slaughtered the animal, and the soothsayer, who foretold the future by reading entrails, stepped forward to take the liver from the hands of the servant. Planting his left foot on the ground, he raised his right foot on a stone and bent low to examine the liver. He found none of the usual indicators. They slaughtered another animal, another and another. Nothing. And the writer goes on to outline the centrality of sacrifice for ancient Greek and Roman religions. And in fact, he explains sacrifice was the central religious act in all ancient religions. It was the way to keep the gods happy. And when the gods were happy, so were the people. And when the people were unhappy, well, this indicated something about the gods, that the gods themselves were not happy. They needed sacrifice. And People instinctively knew this, right? that that something was wrong in the world and needed to be made right, that God or the gods were not pleased and sacrifice was needed. And this all sounds probably very strange. Sacrifice for what, we might ask? We're far beyond this now in our modern enlightened world, aren't we? Well, maybe not. Maybe not. We too know that there's something wrong with our world. And how do we respond to this conundrum? Obviously not with animal sacrifice. That's, um, that's in the past. But per- perhaps with sacrifices of, of other kinds. What are the kinds of things that we uh, sacrifice in order to please the gods, as it were, in order to get the things that we want? There's a, a French philosopher named René Girard, who argues that humans today are as much in need of sacrifice as they were back in Bible times. That actually um, those ancient religions were responding to something that's deeply human and deeply deeply shared across human cultures. He calls this the scapegoat mechanism. Uh, CBC actually ran a short series on this a, a few years back, and it explained it this way. According to French thinker René Girard, Human beings copy each other's desires and are in perpetual conflict with one another over the objects of our desire. In early human communities, this conflict created a permanent threat of violence and forced our ancestors to find a way to unify themselves. They chose a victim, a scapegoat against whom the community could unite. And today, as much as ever before, we still find ourselves, Girard argues, in need of our own scapegoats, sacrifices that we can readily offer up for the sake of our social redemption. Uh, What was done in ancient times by a priest sacrificing animals to keep order between people and God is now performed by, you might call say, priests of another kind, who offer scapegoats for our redemption, usually by demonizing a particular person or group, canceling them, or obviously in extreme times, killing destroying them, and so offering justification to all who believe, to all who will follow after them. Well, in the Old Testament, 
it was, of course, the priest who was essential to all of this, this whole scapegoat dynamic. And the order that was needed was that between the people of Israel and Yahweh, the possessor of the heavens and earth. And in this context, the priest of Israel had a responsibility before God to keep the peace, to keep the world going around, to maintain this covenant relationship with a holy God. The Old Testament describes all of this in great detail. Uh, uh, perhaps too great detail for some of us uh, readers who would prefer to skip over some of these parts of the text. Uh, The priest was to slaughter the sacrifices of Israel, bulls, goats, rams, oxen, place his hand on on the animal's head, cut it open before the altar, pour out its blood into the basin of the altar, take some of that blood from the basin and, and throw it against the altar, burning some parts up completely. Disposing of other parts, keeping the skin uh, at times for the priests, offering some parts back to the people or to the priests for food. And all of this, depending on the type of sacrifice offered, burnt offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, guilt offerings. Day after day, month after month, year after year, the priest making atonement, peace with God on behalf of the people. And our passage begins, we have seen Or we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This order of Melchizedek is, of course, a reference to Psalm 110, the Psalm of David, where David proclaims that the Messianic king would be priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And this harkens back to an Old Testament story where a priest shows up, a a priest who's called the the priest of the Most High God, who comes to Abraham seemingly out of nowhere. We know nothing of this priest's lineage, uh, where he comes from, his ethnic line, and nothing of what happens to him later. He, He just appears in this story and then disappears just as soon. It's somewhat mysterious. And the name Melchizedek in in the Hebrew means literally king of righteousness. And he's described as the king of Salem, or or literally the king of peace, or, or what could be described as the prince of peace. He comes to Abraham offering bread and offering wine. He blesses Abraham. And in response, Abraham gives this great priest a tenth of all he has. And then he's gone. Melchizedek is gone, out of the story never to return again. But the writer of Hebrews picks up on something here in this Genesis 14 account, saying that Jesus has become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What does this mean? Well, there are two key implications that I'd like to draw out for us, that I believe the the writer of Hebrews draws out for us, uh, two that I'd like us to focus on. The first is this, that Jesus differs from all other priests as the eternal priest for us. And second, that Jesus differs from all other priests as the unstained priest, a priest for us. And in these ways, we'll see that Jesus comes to us as uh, as another Melchizedek, as the true and final priest, even as the one who addresses in these ways the hopes and fears of all the years, which are indeed met in him in this Christmas time. 
First, we'll consider Jesus as the eternal priest for us. We see this in verses 23 and 24. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Uh, Aaron is mentioned in our text as well. Aaron, you may remember, is the original priest in Israel's priestly line. The one from whom all other priests would descend. The first of God's appointed priests. Um, Aaron is described throughout uh, the scriptures not as a perfect priest, but one who is faithful. Uh, He faltered, to be sure. He he caved to the pressures of Israel, if you remember, enabling idol worship, the, the worship of a golden calf in his early priestly ministry. But we find that with each of his failures as priest, as high priest, the Lord restores him to his priestly ministry. And then, of course, Aaron would die, and so would his sons. And no matter how faithful a priest grew to be in his ministry, eventually he too would die. This too would open to a new generation of priests, new possibilities for both faithfulness and failure. We know this. And this ever-changing hands of the priesthood put the people of God in, admittedly, a precarious place. The priest could be faithful or not. Uh, The priest could change in time towards faithfulness or unfaithfulness. The priest could lead the people toward righteousness or not. But not so with this faithful priest, we find. Not so with this final priest, says the author of Hebrews. This priest is one who is both perfect and endures forever. He continues, his, his priesthood continues forever. Faithful forever. With this new and greater high priest after the order of Melchizedek, we we don't need to worry about who's next. Uh, We don't have to worry about a faltering of faithfulness. We have a high priest who is priest once and for all. And this is good news all the more, we're told, in light of the next consideration, that Jesus' priesthood is not only eternal, but it's also unstained. You see this in verse 26. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. We think of priests as holy people. And there's truth to this in the Old Testament temple system. Right? Uh, priests needed to be sanctified. They needed to be made holy in order to serve in the inner temple, near to the presence of God. But of course, the very fact that priests needed to be made holy in order to serve as priests, proves the point that no priest ever in the history of Israel, or anywhere for that matter, was in fact holy by themselves. Every priest stood in need of purification, of cleansing, of atonement, in order to then be able to make atonement, to make peace with God on behalf of others. But not so with Jesus, we're told by the author of Hebrews. This new Melchizedek, this new king of righteousness, this new prince of peace, was himself holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. And isn't this what we need in a priest, in a, in a presbyter or a pastor? We need a priest who is ultimately unlike me, with all of my own inadequacies and failures. You and I, we stand in need of a priest whom we can trust deeply, thoroughly, perfectly. Uh, In my own small group just this past week, we talked about stories of hurt in the church, stories of feeling abandoned by the church, failures in church leadership, uh, including some of my own. 
And ultimately, every human, pastor, priest, presbyter, will fail us at some point. And this is obviously a sad uh, reality, but true, that there is no holy, innocent, unstained priest among us. There never has been none, none but Christ. And we need to know this, that in the midst of our own hurts and confusion, disappointments, even with pastors and priests, every one of us who trusts in Christ has a true and greater priest who is ultimately the overseer of our souls. You can trust him, is the the invitation from the Hebrews. You can trust him. He's good. He's perfect. He's innocent. He's a faithful shepherd. That even when earthly pastors or priests fail, you can trust that you have a greater priest, a great high priest who knows and who will one day make even these wrongs right. And who promises in the meantime, even through the present sufferings of our own disappointments, he promises in the meantime to use all such failures even for our good. He's a faithful priest. He's holy. He's innocent. He's unstained. We can trust him. And finally, to conclude, this all has profound implications, of course, for us. Because in Hebrews, we find that not only is Jesus as priest, a priest who is eternal and pure, but he's also the one who gives himself for us. You see, this final priest is unlike any other priest our world has ever known. In virtually every ancient religion, the priest is the one who offers sacrifices on behalf of the people to keep God or the gods happy. But this priest, we find, is one who doesn't simply offer sacrifices outside himself, but offers his very own life. He offers himself. And if Jesus were an impure priest, if he were simply offering his own sinful body as a sacrifice to God, he would simply be paying the debt of his own death for his own sin. The impure priest, in this sense, cannot offer himself on behalf of others. He owes his own debt. But the question that we have to consider here in in Hebrews, and in the scriptures at large, is what about the priest who himself has no sin? What about the priest who is himself pure? What happens when a pure and holy priest offers his very life? As an atoning sacrifice, what happens when the true king of righteousness, the true Melchizedek, is slaughtered on the altar for us? What happens when the blood of the pure and spotless lamb of God is poured out, dripping even from a crown of thorns, dripping from his hands and from his feet? Even from his side, the wound of a spear. What happens when this lamb's blood is poured out at the basin of the cross and dashed against the wooden altar. What happens? Well, this is what happens. The clean or the unclean are made clean. Sinners are washed and redeemed. As the author of Hebrews puts it here, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. Jesus is the final priest for us after the order of Melchizedek. Now, it's important to to ask as we close, who is this Melchizedek? 
And what, what is the significance of Jesus being priest after the order of Melchizedek? Genesis 14 tells us, to paraphrase, Melchizedek, the king of righteousness, king of Salem, prince of peace, is the one who brings out bread and wine. He is priest of God Most High. And he blesses Abraham, whose name literally means the father of many nations. He blesses Abraham and says, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram, we're told, gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. And the writer of Hebrews reads this story in Genesis 14 and reads David's words in Psalm 110 and says, Jesus is the new and greater Melchizedek. He is the true king of righteousness, the prince of peace, priest of the most high God. He is the one who truly blessed Abraham, the father of many nations, and offers to all of Abraham's children bread and wine. And his bread this true king, his bread is the truest of bread. It is his own body and his wine is the truest of wine. It is his own blood. And he invites all who would come to him to eat and to drink and to find life. He offers his own life for us. The priests of old, they offered sacrifices for the sins of the people. But Jesus, we find, offers himself. And what is our response to the one who's offered himself for us? When Melchizedek gave to Abraham bread, wine, and a blessing, Abraham offered a tenth of all he had. When the true Melchizedek offers to us bread, wine, and a blessing, even his own life, how might we respond? Well, a tenth is a good start but our entire lives with it. We offer to the one who's given everything to us, all of our lives, our obedience, our bodies, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to him. This is our spiritual act of worship in response to the one who's given everything for us. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at christchurchtoronto.ca or email us at info at christchurchtoronto.ca.